That was fun. Had no idea Michael had that talent. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 11, if you would, if you have a Bible with you this morning. There's Bibles in the racks around you if you didn't find one or if you don't have one with you. And uh, there's free ones in the back. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love you to have a copy of God's Word. So pick one up on the way out today when you leave. I want to pray with you, and uh, we'll step into this text. Father, would you uh, be our instructor in this moment? You are our God, and you're holy, you're righteous, but we also recognize that you're our teacher. And the words that I would say would, would fall far short if it weren't for the fact that we have before us your inspired word. And it's because it's inspired and you speak through it, we know that we can encounter you. So I ask that you would allow that to happen right now, that we would encounter you as the living God, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in this place, and you would push on our hearts wherever you need to. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. There's a potential that somebody came in here this morning feeling a bit unsettled, maybe fractured a little bit. Perhaps there's some been events in the week behind you that have caused you to feel a little shaken. Things that you didn't see coming maybe a month ago, maybe a week ago, maybe a year ago, and you're still living with the effects of that. And how do you respond in the midst of those circumstances? We're going to look this morning at four different little vignettes. It'll move very, very quickly because we're picking up actually in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Now, you might remember that we ended with Acts chapter 10 last week, and you're wondering why we're skipping over 17 verses. Well, the first 17 verses are actually Peter retelling everything that you learned last week when we looked at Acts chapter 10. So we're going to move forward to verse 18, but in order to get there, I need to help set that up for you just a little bit. Peter, we left him in Caesarea. He's working with a group of individuals known as the Gentiles. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, Gentiles in the Bible is just a name for a race of people who are not Jewish. So there's the Jews and the Gentiles. So if you weren't born Jewish this morning, you're Gentile, all right? It's not a derogatory term. So we see that Peter was in Caesarea, and he's working with the non-Jews, meaning the Gentiles, and the church in Jerusalem gets word of all that happened there. Now, Peter makes his way back to Jerusalem. He's pretty enthusiastic about what has happened in Caesarea. And he gets back to Jerusalem not expecting the first circumstance in which we see him, well, watch yourself. Acts chapter 11, verse 2. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, meaning the Jews, took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What do you do when God pulls you into his activities and other people just don't get it? How do you respond When you're in the midst of what you understand is God's work and he's doing things in which you can clearly see his activity and other people don't understand what's going on. See, the people in Caesarea, they had an undeniable God experience. It was real. Everyone could see it. What had just happened was God encountered them. It's supernatural other than what people would expect to have happened. Peter describes it in verse 15. He summed it up this way. He said, The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. See, the validation is God was in this. The transformation is real. Now remember, even though He's speaking to Christians, the church in Jerusalem, 
He's speaking to fellow believers in Christ. The breach of their customs was so outrageous to them that they had to confront Peter as soon as he arrived in the city. What do you think you're doing? Why are you hanging out with Gentiles? You even ate with them. How could this be? You ever heard that kind of language in church before? In 2015, it sounds like this. We've never done things that way before. Ever heard that? I've especially heard that in church. Well, that's so different. I'm not used to that song. We don't worship that way. He prays so different. He preaches so different. That is not the way church is supposed to be done. So we have our prejudices that we carry into our church life in walking with Christ. And we see it right here in Acts chapter 11. They've confronted Peter and said, what are you doing hanging out with these Gentiles? Now, Peter is really gifted by the Spirit because he rises above the circumstances. Instead of getting into an argument with them and going to the petty bickering that takes place, watch his response because it's very telling for us. It says this in verse 16, Peter speaking, I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What a great response. This is so good. Verse 16, 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. There's a really good lesson there in rising above the circumstances. In being, instead of being swept up in this petty bickering, he speaks straightforward right into their lives and uses this really significant straight statement. If this is God, who am I to stand in God's way? Who of us wants to argue with God's activity? This might as well try and hold back the ocean, right, church? So Peter, in this very short summary in this first circumstance, has said it, it, these two points are really critical to him. He took other brothers and sisters in Christ with him up to Caesarea. They got to see this. They understood what was going on. But most specifically, what he said here is what happened, it aligns with Scripture. It's what Jesus said was going to happen. I remembered the word of the Lord. Jesus said this was going to happen. So we got this first circumstance that we leave on the shelf, and we move on to our next one. Because the time is right now for God to launch the very first Gentile church. He's moving forward with the last phase of Jesus' expansion plan. Jump with me now down to verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Now, let's put ourselves in their situation. Let's try and understand what's going on for them. Christians are running for their life. They literally have left behind everything that was familiar to them in Jerusalem, and they have abandoned what was familiar, and they have run because Saul, before he meets Jesus, is trying to kill Christians. So the persecution scatters the church. Verse 19 says, they made their way to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. So imagine leaving here this morning. You walk out the door and you make your way over to 127 and you walk all the way up 127 until you get to Grayling, Michigan. And at Grayling, 75 intersects with 127 and you jump on 75 and you continue walking until you get to the Mackinac Bridge. And you cross the Mackinac Bridge and you stay on 75 until you get to Sault Ste. Marie. And at Sault Ste. Marie, you meet the Canadian border. You have just walked 300 miles. 
that's what you find the Christians doing. They've scattered so far, they have gone 300 miles away, and they end up in Antioch. And some of them end up in Phoenicia and in Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. You can see this map on the screen that Blair found for me that will help you understand this. Antioch is way, way up to the north, up by Tarsus, Tarsus being Paul's hometown. You can see all of these villages along the way are on the Mediterranean seacoast. Now, we've just been told that believers were scattered. They were sent out abroad. Think about what you learned in the last few weeks. Philip sent to Samaria. Then he meets an African, and an African hears about Christ. Then other individuals are sent to Phoenicia, which is this large plain you see behind you on the map. Some go to the island of Cyprus. What's unique to all of those places is they're a Greek-speaking culture. God has sent Christians out to the places where individuals speak and are deep in the Greek culture. This is a great place for Greek-speaking Christians to end up. So you notice what they do? Verse 19, they're speaking the word of Jesus, but to no one except the Jews. Now, that might confuse you when you look at that and say, well, wait, why is Peter speaking to Gentiles, but they're only speaking to the Jews? Because they bolted. They left Jerusalem when Stephen got murdered. They didn't know that the gospel of Jesus has gone to the Gentiles also, so they're just speaking to the Jews at this point. They're about to find out differently. Now, let's understand Antioch just a little bit because it's going to play a huge role in the study of Acts as we move forward. Antioch was to the Roman world what New York City is to our world today, an amazing city, third largest city in the Roman Empire, half a million people, a melting pot of all types of cultures, individuals from Persia and from the Middle East and from Africa who had settled there, the Roman world recognize it's a vacation spot. So individuals, when they retired, would find themselves making their way to Antioch. Antioch was a beautiful city laid out by an architect in such a grid pattern that if you owned a shop or a marketplace, they had laid it out in such a way that the breezes off the Mediterranean Sea would keep your customers cool as they shopped. A remarkable city because it, had the, it was the only city with nightlights. One city in the ancient Roman world. Not Thomas Edison type nightlights, all right? Now, this is way, way before electricity. So they've got oil that they're putting in the lights at night. A remarkably wealthy, politically powerful, commercially charged city. And people wanted to be there. So it's known for its sophistication and for its culture, but it's also known for its vices. Incredibly immoral city. People living however they wanted to. So with such a really large population, commercially powerful, politically influential, this is a perfect place, a huge opportunity to present Jesus to people who are hungry and needy in their life. So that sets up verse 20 because it says this, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus, meaning that island, and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So we've had our second circumstance. Now we come into our third one, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So when the believers arrive in this really powerful city, they're not intimidated. They're bold. They don't feel intimidated by the magnificence of the city or by the prosperity of the culture. And the first Gentile church is born in Antioch. So notice verse 20, because it's pretty significant. 
It says they're speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, what may not catch your attention at first, I'll point out to you, perhaps it will help you to understand what they're really doing here. Every place in the book of Acts up to this point, when a believer goes out and begins talking about Jesus, it says they're preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it says they're preaching the Lord Jesus but he didn't include the word Christ, right? If you look at your translation of the Bible, you look on the screen, they're preaching the Lord Jesus, but it doesn't say Christ. Now, we know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ is a title, right? It means Messiah. So why would they not use Lord Jesus Christ in this setting? You've got Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who have come into a politically powerful city and they're preaching the Lord Jesus, meaning the facts of his life, the facts of his death, and that he was resurrected. But they leave out the Messiah part. Why? To present him as Messiah to a Gentile audience would mean absolutely nothing to them. It's not significant. So catch this. Because they're bold because they're willing to go into this culturally influential city, because they're willing, and because they know how to speak to the culture that they're in, God does something according to verse 21. It says the hand of the Lord was with them. They understand the times. Now in the Old Testament, the phrase the hand of the Lord has a different meaning than what it does in the New Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, you see the hand of the Lord being something that's carrying out vindication. Matter of fact, when Moses is speaking to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, he says, Pharaoh, you're in a lot of trouble because the hand of the Lord is going to bring severe pestilence upon you. Well, that's one side of the hand of the Lord, the powerful hand of the Lord. But the other side of the hand of the Lord is found in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, you see this up on the screen, Nehemiah 2, 8. The king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. See, that's God's power in blessing. That's what's going on in verse 21. In this case, in verse 21, it's the powerful hand of God's blessing. And so a large number of people turn to the Lord. So we understand the gospel is being preached, right? Here comes the fourth circumstance. It's being preached. The response is really great. Look at verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are aware. They're hearing about something 300 miles away. They're aware that there's something going on that they've never heard of before, so they send this really trusted individual to go investigate. Anybody happen to remember what the nickname was for Barnabas that we saw in Acts chapter 6? Son of encouragement, that's right. Excellent, good memory. He's called the son of encouragement. Let's watch and see how he lives up to this nickname because we've got Barnabas who's a Jew, who's a Christian, who's from the island of Cyprus, who's got an outstanding reputation and he's known as the son of encouragement. Now guys, if you're looking for a role model in the Bible, look at Barnabas because this is a guy who should be admired. He's totally devoted to Jesus, very much sold out, but he's also a guy who's really, really loving on people in the church. He's generous with believers, but that's not all. As a matter of fact, you get to see a spiritual profile of him in verse 24, but we've got a guy here who's loving, he's very gentle, but he's also really firm. He's a solid, solid teacher, and he's a guy who's not going to be perceived as an outsider because he speaks the Greek language. 
So the church in Jerusalem could not have made a better choice. Go with me to verse 23. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. This, this passage is a really good reminder for us. First of all, we were told that when he arrives, he witnesses the grace of God. God's grace isn't necessarily visible, is it, church? You can't point to it and see it. But the effects of God's grace, that is visible. So God's grace is invisible, but God's effect of grace is visible. I see it this morning. I see it in the lives of those of us who are represented in this room. Do we have the grace of God on our life, church? Why? Because we're changed individuals, right? We can see it in each other because we know that Jesus has come into our life and changed us. We aren't what we once were. I once was blind, but now I see. So we see the effects of grace. Well, that's what's going on for Barnabas. He shows up here and he sees the grace of God. How does he see it? In the lives of those who are saved. And because he sees it's legitimate, these people are changed. We're told he begins to rejoice. He's seeing souls added to the kingdom, takes them to the point of celebration. Uh, let me hang on to verse 24 for just a minute before we move forward because you get an important character profile for Barnabas. We're told he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, kind of a spiritual profile. He's the type of guy everybody wants to be around, Christians and non-Christians, because he's a righteous man who's not a hypocrite. He, he lives out his life in such a way that what he reads on Sunday morning, he actually applies to his life on Monday morning. This guy's very, very solid, so that's why he's got such a great reputation. His character, we're told according to the Bible, is above reproach. Now think about his bridge-building personality. We saw in Acts chapter 6 or 7 when Saul was led to Jesus on the road to Damascus. Who comes to bat for Saul? Barnabas. He's the one that tells the church in Jerusalem what happened is real. He's really changed. Paul is really a believer in Jesus Christ. He's a bridge builder. He can see both ends of the spectrum. Churches need people like Barnabas. He's, he's actually just like contagious, and I don't mean that in a bad way. He's contagious in a good way. So how does Barnabas encourage these people? Because that's what we're told he does. He comes in there and encourages them. Encourages them. So here's how he does it. He rejoices at what he sees. He's celebrating. He's not looking for reasons to criticize. He's looking for reasons to celebrate. And he begins worshiping with Gentiles. Now, what do you think that was like? The first time a Jew, Barnabas, steps into a Gentile church and begins singing songs that he hasn't sung before. It's like, I don't sing songs that way, but you guys are doing it. I don't pray the way that you've done it, but you're doing it. We don't take communion that way back in Jerusalem, but look at how you're doing it. This is like... Yeah, you guys are great. Look at how Jesus is changing your life. See, he's recognizing it's a work of God. So Barnabas is giving thanks to God for his grace. Now, this is why I present this. We're at a crisis point in the life of the early church here. This is a very significant moment. The authorities in Jerusalem have sent an expert up to Antioch to investigate what's God up to. A whole lot depends on Barnabas' reaction to what he sees. And we're told, according to verse 24, as a direct result of his work, Luke gives us the update. A considerable number of people have come to Jesus. Let's think about the setting. 
Antioch is pagan to the core. People are doing all kinds of sexually immoral things. They're driven to live their life any way that they want to. It's politically powerful. And yet we see this church having a massive impact on a pagan city. That's the result of positive encouragement. And the work at Antioch continues to go forward because Barnabas has been their encourager. Now, he knows what you know this morning. He knows that followers of Jesus have to be grounded in the Word before they can have a really great testimony. So we find him recognizing that. The influx into this church is so large, he says, I can't do this alone. I need someone to help me. Move forward into verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Wouldn't that be cool to sit under Paul's feet for one year? I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. These guys get Paul and Barnabas to teach them for a year. Now understand, finding Saul is no easy task whatsoever. He's got a hard task ahead of him. Because of this particular Greek word that I didn't put into your notes this morning, but you'll see it up on the screen. And it's a tale. And it literally means that when Barnabas went to Tarsus to try and find him, he was really having a hard time, and here's why. It's been 10 years since Saul was led to faith in Jesus Christ. He made his way to Jerusalem. He got to know the disciples, the apostles, and then they put him on a ship at Caesarea and sent him sailing up to Tarsus, and there he's been for 10 years. So not only has he aged physically, but we learn something else from Scripture. It appears that during this period of time, Saul was disinherited by his family. And so he's not living at home anymore. I don't know if you have a Jewish understanding of what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ in a Jewish context, but many times those individuals are shunned by the Jewish community. Paul seems to speak of that in Philippians 3. He talks about the loss of all things. It appears that he was told to leave home. Look with me on the screen. Maybe you've never looked at this passage this way before. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of of all things, three times in two sentences, I have suffered the loss of everything. Most theologians agree this is the point where Paul's talking about the fact that his family said, you believe in Jesus, you're out of here. We want nothing to do with you. Uh, eventually, eventually, Barnabas catches up with Saul, and the two of these individuals, they form an incredibly powerful team for the kingdom. But they got this daunting task in front of them. They're going to go in and lead a large church of new believers in a really hostile environment, this very pagan city. So they got a solution according to verse 26. They're going to take an entire year, and they're going to teach these people because they know the most critical need of new believers is to be taught the Word of God. And we get this little detail that seems very insignificant in verse 26, but it really plays into the circumstances this morning. We're told that's where Christians are first called Christians. The term Christian means of the house of Christ or of the party of Christ. It appears that it was used in a very derogatory way in the first century. 
See, Jews would not call Christians Christians because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they would never use the title Christ associated with Jesus. So Jews didn't use the title Christian. And the Christians, the people in the church, wanted to be called the followers of Jesus or people of the way. So they didn't attach that title to themselves. Where does that come from? It comes from that pagan society, the culture who's trying to deride and degrade them calling them of the party of Jesus. The word Christian is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Two times are in Acts. One time is in the book of 1 Peter, where Peter says, endure the name of Christian with pride. Why would he say that? Because in Rome, sanctioned religions had the protection of the Roman Empire. But non-sanctioned religions, they're fair game. What Luke is letting us know here is this is the point where the persecution is really ramping up, where the Neros and the Caligulas and the Claudiuses, who were the Caesars, decided to turn on the non-sanctioned, the religio lasitas were sanctioned, the non-religio lasitas, not sanctioned, that's the Christians. They're not of the sect of the Jews they don't belong to Judaism. So he's letting us know this little detail. Something's changed. The circumstances are different than what they were. It's not just a curiosity. Take that thought into verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius, one of the Caesars. Some prophets came to Antioch. And they're bringing bad news. It's distressing news. There's a famine coming, and it's going to be worldwide, meaning all of the inhabited world, everything that they knew of. Worldwide famine. Now, in the New Testament, prophecy is viewed as this. It's got a specific description to it. It means the Word of God spoken through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to an individual, always for edification or for direction. Today, in 2015, when we think of prophecy, we think of someone who's telling of future things, right? We, we think of someone who's given interesting little details. So we're fascinated by the book of Revelation because it's full of prophecy. Well, the role of prophets are very much in line with thinking of prediction, but more importantly, the reality of the main role of a prophet is to prepare God's people for action. So a prophet doesn't just show up to share curious things. He shows up to say, God's going to do something. You've got to be prepared to respond. So the important thing about Agabus here is not so much that he foretold the future, is that he's exhorting God's people to get ready to help other people. That prophecy came to pass. Claudius became Caesar in 41 A.D. He ruled until 54 A.D. In 45 and 46 A.D., a severe famine swept across the known world. Israel was one of the greatest recipients of the famine. It became horrendous. Hundreds of thousands of people died. Josephus, an ancient historian, wrote that for the lack of money, people were starving to death because what little food was available wasn't even affordable. There's a critical truth coming out for the reason that Dr. Luke included that passage in the end of this story in Acts chapter 11. If the purpose of true prophecy is not for curiosity, but rather to stir up our hearts to do the will of God, 
That means circumstances can change. God sees the future, and He tells us what's coming, and He says you've got to be prepared. In other words, believers can't stop the famine, but we can help those who are affected by it. So translate that to something like the book of Revelation. God says all these curious things are going to happen. It's coming in the future. What are you doing to prepare for it? How are you getting ready to help other people? God says there's something coming that is absolutely extraordinary. It's going to change the face of planet Earth. How are you helping people to get ready for it? Watch how the church responds to the prophet Agabus. In verse 29 and 30, we get the last two verses. The church responds. It says this in verse 29, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution to the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And we get real quickly this pattern for giving today. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. The response at Antioch is immediate. They hear the word of God. They recognize it's real and they prepare themselves. So just like the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 4, who are generously sharing with one another, we see this church in Acts chapter 11 doing the same thing. But I want you to notice the really subtle changes. Coming into the home stretch here, so hear this. this. This applies to your life. There's really subtle things going on here. The famine strikes. The collection is received at the church. The money has taken by Paul and Barnabas, and it's delivered at the feet of the elders back in Jerusalem. Do you notice the transition that's taken place here? In the early days, 10 years previous, the apostles had all the responsibility of charity. They were collecting the money. They were distributing to people in need. Now it's Paul and Barnabas bringing it to them. At one time, no one in the church had any need. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 4 says, Every man shared with one another according to how they had need. People were selling property in order to help their brothers and sisters just to survive. Now we find this church, 300 miles away, has to step up to the plate and help the mother church. Do you think that that was humbling for them to be the mother church and have to have these Gentiles 300 miles away Send us support? I want you to understand what's going on here is a change in circumstances because God's on the move. When God's on the move, circumstances change in your life. Some of you came in with circumstances this morning that are completely different than what you had a week ago. Something that you didn't see coming and you're wondering, why did this happen? What is going on in my life? Understand, God is still using the church in Jerusalem. He's just using them in a different way. God knows there's new believers 300 miles away, and they need to be taught what it looks like to give and give generously. So he uses the famine. He uses the distress in the life of people who are 300 miles to the south in order to teach the believers who are 300 miles to the north what it looks like to give generously. See, you never know, church, you absolutely never know when a shift in your life circumstances is not as much about you as it is about God using those circumstances to teach and shape someone else, to draw them closer into relationship with Him. 
Let me say that again. You never know when the circumstances going on in your life is not as much about you as it is God using those circumstances to point people to him. The last thing we get is this pattern for New Testament giving that comes out of verse 29, and it it plays into these circumstances, I think, in a remarkable way. You can see it up on the screen, Acts 11, 29, and it's actually the King James Version of the verse. And it said, every man gave according to his ability. That's remarkable to me because this is a huge change. This is the very principle by which Paul taught the church for the rest of his life what giving looks like among God's people. This became the benchmark, and it emerges out of a famine in the first century. When Paul begins to write in 2 Corinthians, don't let somebody trap you into giving. Give not under compulsion, but give out of the joy of your heart, out of your dedication to God. That comes right out of this, every man giving according to his own ability. We recognize there's been some some significant circumstances this morning from Peter showing up in Jerusalem and people saying, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with the Gentiles? It can begin to feel like his world was shaken a little bit, like why are they reacting that way? To Barnabas being sent 300 miles away to go investigate and have to become the cheerleader for that church. That could be a shaking situation for those individuals in that church not knowing how is this guy going to respond to us. And we come into this last setting where individuals are living through a famine who are feeling absolutely shaken. You sang this morning about we will not be shaken. The reality is when you're in the midst of a really hard life circumstance, it does feel like your word is shake, world is shaking, doesn't it? it? It feels like things are trembling underneath you. The statement, we will not be shaken, is not because of our strength, is it, church? It's because of his strength. It's because of who he is. So the remarkable thing to me about all these circumstances that we've just looked at is that God is completely behind the scenes. Nothing is out of his control. He's weaving everything together into a beautiful tapestry, saying, this didn't catch me by surprise. I'm working behind the scenes. I'm using all of these things. I'm weaving it all for my purposes. I don't know how God spoke to you out of those circumstances this morning that you looked at. Maybe something to apply specifically to your life. That's how I'm going to pray for us to end this morning, that God would imprint upon you how you're supposed to respond in the midst of the circumstances that you're in. Would you join me in that? Let's do that together. Father, your word is alive and it's active and it is sharper than a two-edged sword and I know that you pierced in some way. You used it like a scalpel in the last half hour in ways that caught some people by surprise. God, I ask that because your word is alive, that you would allow it to not degenerate in our minds' forefront as we move forward with this afternoon. Cause us, Father, to lean more heavily into you, recognizing that whatever circumstances that are going on in our life right now, We can lean on you because you will not be shaken. Therefore, Father, we cannot be shaken because our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. Our confidence is in you. Father, I pray specifically that you will use the circumstances we just learned about and apply them to the lives of the individuals who are here today. God, that you might even translate it into boldness 
that we would walk more confidently knowing that what's happening to us in the midst of our circumstances is not by accident, but it's because you're at work. You're doing things, Father. Use them for the glory of your name and your kingdom. We will ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.